It's good to be with you tonight. We want to welcome you again to Calvary Chapel tonight, our midweek Bible study. Um, okay, so we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 9. We are actually in the middle of a sermon, a message that Jeremiah has been told to bring forward to the nation of Israel, excuse me, the nation of Judah. It started in chapter 7. And if you go back to chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord tells Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word. So this seems like this goes up through the end of chapter 10 is all that he is supposed to say there in the gate or right at the temple. Um, You know, given the fact that he's supposed to say it at the temple, it's probably being uh, given at a time at a... Um, a festive, you know, uh, uh, time at the temple, maybe one of the the high feast days when a lot of people would hear this. Um, actually, if if we um, take a put a timeline on the 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 book of Jeremiah internally, you know, chapters one through six was Jeremiah right out of the starting blocks, his first message, versus chapters one through six. Chapters 7 through 10 is probably a good 17 years in the future. And um, it's during a time of maybe Jehoahaz or Jehoiakim when, when um, uh, Jeremiah uh, was called to be a prophet and first, his voice was first heard on the, on the stage of um, Judah. It was Josiah as king. Now it's Jehoahaz. And um, so we pick it up in the middle of this message. Um, let's just go back in chapter 8 just to pick up a couple of themes so we know what's, what's being said. Look at verse um, look at verse 8, excuse me, 9 of chapter 8. Wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. Okay, that's, a, that's a central theme in what he is saying in this message. Um, and, uh, you know, Proverbs 19 says... Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray, and you'll go astray. And so um, the nation of Israel, for many generations, had turned away from the Lord. There had been some surface revivals under Josiah, because Josiah's heart genuinely, genuinely was turned towards the Lord, and he enforced some things, but overall the people of Judah were moving farther and farther away from the Lord. Uh, and so, and you know, when you stop, stop listening to the Lord, look, every, every kind of sin shows up, verse uh, 10, middle of verse 10, chapter uh, 8, everyone, because from the least and even, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness, from the prophet even to the priest. Everyone deals falsely. Go down to verse 12. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. You know, a loss of shame, and or you know, anything goes. Everything's acceptable. And so then, when we get into the end of chapter eight, um, Jeremiah is um, expressing the grief that he has over the um, the impending judgment that is being spoken of in the messages that he is given by the Lord. Um, look at verse 18. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Um, and of course, um, one of the most poignant 
verses in the Bible, verse 20, chapter 8, where um, there's sort of a view forward after the judgment, and there's a realization that they blew it. They had the opportunity to turn and repent, and they never did. And that's the verse that says, the, su- the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The idea is that they had lots of opportunities, and they just walked right past him. And now they, here they sit, sometime in the future, in that vision, in judgment, with the realization all their opportunities are behind them. Um, we pick it up in chapter 9. Where uh, verse one, Jeremiah begins to, you know, live out that moniker he has um, of being the weeping prophet. He says, "Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people." Um, you know, the misery and death that is coming because of their refusal to. Turn back to the Lord. And he sees it, and it's so grieving to him. Verse 2, oh, that he, you know, he wants to grieve over that. But verse 2, he says he just wants to get away from the whole thing. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men, or a congregation of treacherous men. It would be a better way of saying it. Um... Uh, he, he's just he's sick of everything that's around him, um, of the corruption that's endemic. It's everywhere, and he just wants to get away from it. You know, you ever feel that way sometimes about um, the culture as it gets farther and farther away from the Lord? Um, you know, you just want to turn the news off. Don't read the paper. Don't turn the radio on. He's just I'm sick of hearing hearing it. And uh, so that that's the same place Jeremiah was in. Verse 3, he says, and, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Um, the, uh, uh, there's a couple of interesting phrases in there. They are not valiant for truth on the earth. Um, you know, the word valiant and the word, the original language there also just, you know, just like our language, it means to be brave, to be bold, to be courageous, um, to do great things. And I've said it here before. I know, you know, you've heard me say it. We serve a great God. We ought to be doing great things. Uh, someone who's valiant for truth on the earth, you know, the New Testament were told to do this in God's grace. First Corinthians sixteen thirteen it says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is not an admonition that ought to be strange to us. Valiant for truth. on What does that look like? Um, what does being valiant for truth look like? I think it's an interesting phrase. Well, um, you know, not being afraid of truth, truth in my life uh, or my family's life or others' lives. Um, you know, I, you know the power of God's word, the power of truth uh, in your own life. Um, so take God's mercy, take him at his word, take his grace, uh, know that he's ready to forgive 
Uh, he's ready to save. He's ready to transform people. He's ready to transform you, me. He'd do it for anybody. And uh, so we're not afraid of maybe going out on a limb based only on God's grace and his mercy to somebody who doesn't deserve it, right? Love is patient. Love is kind, not easily provoked. Who in your life, in the landscape of your life, needs some kindness and some patience? You know, maybe you're easily provoked by them. Well, maybe it's time for God's grace to enter in there in a valiant way and uh, to see God's power come in. You know, it's being valiant for truth doesn't mean you just stand there with facts, and uh, although having right facts is certainly part of that, but um, we got to take it out there and do something with it. So there you go. Um, valiant for truth on the earth. These people proceeded from evil to evil, and they do not know me. This is going to be a theme, not knowing him. We'll see it again. Verse 4 says, Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant. That's kind of a funny play on words, right? What's uh, uh, the other moniker for, the other kind of name for, this, the, for Israel? Jacob. What does his name mean? Supplanter. And, you know, he doesn't have a very good reputation, except that he finally broke and came to the Lord. But he was known as the guy who was going to be calculating how to get the most out of your relationship with him, right? At, even at your expense. And he's saying now everybody, the whole nation is nothing but Jacob's. Every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Verse 5, everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. There's again our, our idea of not knowing him. It's more than just not knowing and in, in, in innocent ignorance. It's a deliberate ignorance. They don't want to know me. You know, why don't, why don't people want to know the Lord even today? You know, the, the, the message of Jesus is pretty... Um, common in the United States, lots of churches, and I know the, the mixed messages and stuff, um, but it's pretty rare that you find somebody who hasn't heard of the name of Jesus in the United States. So why don't people come to him? Uh, there's only one reason. They don't want to give up their sin. You know, for all the intellectual reasons people put out there, well, what about this? What about, you know, and they got this quandary of, of thing out of the Bible that no one's been able to answer you know, to them in a, in, a, in a way, maybe you answer that, but really that's just a smokescreen. People don't want to come to the Lord because they know if they come to the Lord, they have to give up a sin. They like that sin. And so when I get those questions, I always, I always you know, understand the translation of that in my mind as I'm talking to people. They ask me those questions. I realize that's not, they're just trying to hide behind those questions. What sin do they not want to give up? Because there isn't anything about Jesus they won't like, right? Um, You know, verse 4 through 6 means kind of like, watch your back. You can't trust anybody. Society has broken down that far. Uh, You know, they were supposed to live in their tribal areas for safety, and they're supposed to be a a great deal of uh, care and concern for one another. 
and care for the poor. Sin has been so uh, developed and unchecked in in their city for so long in their their villages that now nobody can be trusted. The people you're supposed to trust the most, they're going to sue you. That sounds, that's science fiction, right? That sounds weird now, right? No. Um, it's a sign of societal breakdown and advancement of sin. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, Behold, I will refine them and try them, for how shall I deal with uh, the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Um, Again, superficially they say one thing, but internally they're they're not bent towards one another. There's There's no kindness towards one another. You know, and the Lord doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be kind of like what you see is what you get kind of people, uh, just genuine. And um, what's on the inside is what's on the outside. And it wasn't that way. Um, shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Again, here's, here's um, Jeremiah. I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they are burned up so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are all gone. And again, the Lord speaks firsthand again, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals, I will make, uh, and a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Um, Again, it's a vision of ruined land, um, verse 7 through 11 here. Um, you know, no one wants their, you know, no one in Judah wanted their land to end up like this. This, wasn't, this is what, was not what they had in mind for themselves. But they're in sin, and they're refusing to turn around and hear the warnings from the Lord. And sin always takes us farther than we want to go. Um, you know, to whom you present yourself to obey, you're that one's sin. You're that one's slave. So for centuries they had given themselves over to rejecting the word of the Lord. And sin had just gone unchecked and developed and developed. Um, you know, no one goes into, the, into sin with the idea of total destruction for themselves and for those around them. But again, sin always takes us farther than we want to go. And uh, the Lord doesn't want to act this way towards them. It's, it breaks his heart to have to do this. But they've left him no option. I mean, he's, he's trying to bring in this, this salvation of the whole world through that just little group of people there. And it's all in jeopardy because of their sin. They've backed him into a corner. Um, so verse 12 through 6, 16 here. Um, you know, the central issue here is going to be, of course, rejecting God's word. Verse 12, who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? 
Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? Again, it's what we saw in the vision just a few verses ago. And the Lord said, here's his answer, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts after the Baals, or Baals, however you want to pronounce it, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood. It's just a, like you might, it might be just something poisonous, some sort of poisonous substance from a plant. And give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Again, the central issue is rejecting God's word. And, you know, uh, that's the central problem. Um, But that means something in itself, doesn't it? I mean, um, you know, disobedience means something more than just breaking the rules, right? Um, Believers, as people who have a living relationship with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection... We're supposed to enjoy obedience, right? Um, and there's a, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why you enjoy obeying the Lord. It's because you love the Lord. And you want to be pleasing to him, right? Okay, now, there is a side of our salvation, that objective side, which, you know, the Lord has seeing that we have faith, we've put our, you know, we've, we've received the gospel, the, 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 the statement that Jesus is, has died for our sin, rose from the dead bodily and ascended into heaven, you know, all the essential facts, you've received those facts, believe those, trust those, and so the objective side of that is God says you're forgiven. You know, you're forgiven, and you have perfect standing with me. And, and we are thankful for that. We're eternally thankful. That's what we have on the objective side. But there's a subjective side of this also, and that's the side that says, even though I am pleasing in your sight because I'm accepted in Jesus, still I want to do things that please you right here, right now. I want to be pleasing to you, Lord, because I love you. And I want to be, you know, bringing you things that you desire. I don't, I don't want to be offending you. And it's not just because I'm afraid of him. It's because cause you love him. And so, um, because we have trust in that love relationship with him, we, we take what he says to us. We know that it's the best for us. And we do it. And we, and we stay in his word. And, we, and we, we love what he tells us to do. When he tells us not to do something, we say, okay, yeah, because... That's what's right, and he loves me, and he wouldn't tell me something wrong. He know, we know he's got our very best in mind. And so, you know, obedience to the Lord means a lot more than just doing what's right, um, especially when there's options, right? <laughs> this world's got a lot of options for us. There's options, and it means even more when there's a cost to pay when you obey the Lord, right? Wow. I mean... As a parent, put yourself with a relationship with your child that way. When your child is obeying you, 
When there's options, he doesn't have to obey you. And to obey you, you know, there's some hardship on his from outside. Wow. You know, you see that as a parent. You're like, let's buy you a car. Let's do anything. I don't care if you're six. Let's go, you know, uh, let's just do anything for you. Y- you know, you fall over yourself. It, you think, where's my kid? What have you done with him? No. Um, but you know what I mean, that that kind of obedience means something more than just trying to be good. But on the flip side of that, disobedience means something too. Disobedience is the flip of all that. Um, You know, we're not talking about a slip up or a fall, nothing like that. I mean, we all slip, we all fall, we all sin. You know, that's plain, but... Um, the kind of disobedience that we're seeing here out of the Jeremiah speaking to, a continuous lifestyle of rejecting God's word, though it is being set in front of you. If we go to 1 John, right? There's a couple of verses there that talk about that. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right? Disobedience means more. Just like obedience means more than just the keeping of rules. It means there's no trust there. It means we don't care about that love relationship. I mean, we don't care about offending him. That's a sad comment, right? Um, John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 verse 4 says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's a heavy statement. It goes on and says, we know that nobody who's, who's born again can pr- continuously practice unrighteousness. So Jesus put it this way, right? He put it this way. He said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. Yeah, that's the one who loves me. And he takes it even farther when he, when he sees that the, that obedience is in the face of, a, of great difficulty. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yeah. So, you know, um, the central issue here for these people, again, was obedience and disobedience, and it meant something much more than just you broke the rules. They've rejected the law of which he said, said which I set before them. They're not interested in God's word because they're not interested in God. Okay, so uh, let's go to verse 17. Uh, It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come, and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears. And our eyelids gush with water, for a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered, how we are greatly ashamed, because we have forsaken the land, because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Okay, so, so Jeremiah is kind of being a responsible guy here. He sees that there's going to be a great judgment, and, and Judah is going to be conquered, and they'll be kicked out of the land. And so he says, go ahead and make arrangements for professional mourners. Uh, that's just something that they did that time to... Uh, to enhance their own expressions of grief, you know, uh, you would bring professional whalers in to make lots of lots and lots of 
crying, wailing noises to express your grief. And he's saying, let's just go ahead and schedule this in because this is going to happen. Verse 20, yet hear the word of the Lord, a woman, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. And there's this imagery here, verse 21, for death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children. Yee. No longer be outside, to no longer be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. You know, you don't bag up your grass. When you cut the lawn, you got all that dead grass laying around. That's what the bodies are going to be like. It's a really, really sad, sad um, picture of where, this, where their sin is going to lead them. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich glory in his riches. And those are all things that the world glories in. Wisdom, someone who's got all the facts, right? They got the knowledge, they know how to do stuff, they're put in high places because of their understanding of complexities and corporate structures or law or global, you know, it goes on. Wow, that guy's impressive. That person is impressive. The the mighty, you know, that more and more, the... You know, someone's strength and stamina, you know, the, the sports athletes, you know, are, are on the scene in that one. Let the rich glory in his riches, of course. You know, they don't have a lifestyles of the poor and miserable. No, they don't do that. Um, let the, but he says, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Um i got a couple of comments here I, I took from a Calvary pastor named David Guzik. He says this. He says, To glory in something is to celebrate it and to proclaim it as the source of one's happiness and satisfaction. We think of a champion athlete glorying in the trophy just won. As they hold the trophy high, they proclaim through their actions, words, facial expressions, everything, this was my goal, this is my satisfaction, my happiness, and I celebrate it now. God did not rebuke man's instinct to look for glory. Instead, God guided that instinct to its proper destination. The problem with man is not that he longs to glory in something. The problem is that he generally glories in the wrong things, leading to his own hurt, the hurt of others, and most seriously, to offend his creator. He set the glory too low. Look, these things the Lord might give, and they'd be good. Wisdom, might, riches, those are not bad things. They're things that might bless somebody with, but they're lower than God. And to glory in those is wrong. It says, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Loving kindness. 
Um, that's the uh, word for um, the covenant love that the Lord has. And in that love, he makes promises. He says, I will always act in this way. You can read about it right here. This is the way I'll always be. Yeah. Uh, that uh, his judgment, um, that he knows the difference between right and wrong. God, this world needs that today. And righteousness, absolute goodness and purity and moral character. Um, we can glory in that, glory in those things about the Lord. And boy, is that a safe place for us, isn't it? To put our lives underneath him and his, his care, his, his covenant love, his judgment, tells us what's right and wrong, and we can trust that. And his righteousness, uh, he's going to show us exactly the right thing to do. For in these I delight, says the Lord, Verse 25, um, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all those, all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, uh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Uh, Of course, again, you know, the, the sign of their covenant that they were God's chosen people and was the circumcision, and, um, but it was just a ritual, and it, was no, it had no meaning if there was no inward reality. If there's, a, if there's a parallel for the new covenant, it's baptism, right? Um, people, you know, uh, how, you know, in this area that's um, heavily weighed down by um, a lot of uh, traditions that emphasize infant baptism. You know, you go to, unfortunately, you go to funerals, and they make this, this statement, how many times have, you, have I sat there and just, you know, cringe when, the, when they say, because he was baptized, he or she was baptized as a baby, we proclaim. And, you know, you wish... It was so different. The baptism isn't is just a ritual. Uh, it can reflect a tremendous inner reality that there is a relationship with the Lord. You know, that baptism, um, just, just like you know, the circumcision was supposed to represent that the flesh was cut out of the heart, that, that, that we're going to be spiritual people and we're going we're gonna to be spiritually minded. Uh, the baptism is, is kind of an outward sign that way too. That, that I'm being buried and raised to new life. And that whole water has a huge symbolic uh, value to it. Remember, the world was judged by water once. It's kind of like being dead and then raised again, that whole baptism thing. That could be a tremendous witness and testimony to yourself and to those who know you've been baptized if you make a rational decision to be baptized, Right? Babies can't make a rational decision to be baptized and to believe and be believe. That's why you. That's why you get baptized, right? That's what Peter says. It's the response of a good conscience. But unfortunately, baptism can be just an empty ceremony that people trust in. It doesn't do anything. Like what he says right here, he says, "Egypt, Judah, Edom. Judah is thrown right in the midst, in the middle of the uncircumcised." He's saying there's no difference here. There's no difference. 
So hear the word of the Lord, which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, chapter 10, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. This is a reference to what we might call astrological forecasts, signs in heaven um, that, you know, you look up your, because you were born and the sun was in a specific spot in the sky and whatever um, constellation, you know, supposedly that means something. He says this is worthless. Uh, There's nothing there. Uh, For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. You know, you could probably prove scientifically that the influence of the stars and those constellations on your birth, uh, there's probably more of an gravitational influence on that chunk of uh, wood sitting in front of you than there are on those stars out there. Okay, never mind. Um, uh, one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. You have to decorate it with silver and gold because it, you know, a block of wood just isn't it that impressive, even if it's shaped. But you cover it with, uh, they would cover it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright, upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. Uh, they must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. I don't want a God I have to carry. I want a God that can carry me. Um, yeah. So don't be afraid of them. They can't do evil and nor can they do good. They can't do anything. And I like verse uh, 6, 7, and 8 here. 6 and 7. Uh, inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, and there isn't anybody like him. He's not like anybody you know. He's completely unique. You are great. He is great. And your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Um, but they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. Again, you know, clothing for the block of wood. They are all the work of the skillful men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. That's a great way of clarifying who you're talking about, right? People start talking about God. There's a lot of gods out there these days that people talk about. So who who are you talking about? Let's talk about the one true living God of the Bible. That's a good one to talk about. Let's clarify that. We know what he's like. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from heaven and from under these and uh, perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what I was taught in school. Okay, so the ushers are bringing markers up. You just cross that out and you write down evolution. 
Somebody's going to throw something at me. Um, you know, no, no, no. Um, I never miss an opportunity, you know, to kick the dead horse of evolution. And so, um, you know, when you talk to your friends and your family, whatever, coworkers, um, you know, the, uh, the militant atheists have entrenched evolution into society. And, um, but evolution is very easily, easy, easily dismantled. It crumbles under its own weight. If anybody knows anything about evolution, what do they say? Survival of the fittest, right? Survival of the fittest. Okay, well, that's just one little bit of evolution, and that requires a lot of stuff in front of it and a lot of stuff behind it that you can't detach from survival of the fittest because the meaning, the whole meaning of evolution, right, is a couple of things. First of all, millions of years. We're not going to talk about that right now. But the other meaning of that is of evolution and that there's nothing non-physical about you and about me. Nothing non-physical. Have you thought about that? I hope you have. Because as a believer, you know your body, soul, and spirit. Well, they deny soul and spirit. If you want to lump them into one or call it two separate things, it doesn't matter. They say you're just body. Well, if you're just body, then you're just chemical soup, you know? You're just some electrons moving around. You're just a fuzzy little blur of electron noise. That's all you are. And it doesn't matter how, how far you scale that electron noise, it's all just garbage. And it can't produce anything except, except meaningless noise. Even if what comes out of it is the evolution, theory of evolution. Do you see where that goes? Evolution crumbles under its own weight. It proves that it is meaningless from its basic tenets. Uh, uh, he has made the earth by his power. Yes, the Lord has made the earth by his power. And he has established the world by his wisdom. And more and more as science uh, delves into the creation, more and more of that is inescapable. And he has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. That's remarkably accurate terminology for a, you know, a... Um, a 2,500-year-old document (laughs) stretching out the heavens. That's the way they talk about space-time. It's stretched. Okay. Uh, When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, or he thunders like the waters, and he causes vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Uh, He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. You know, in these days... Um, uh, I, you know, enjoy the thunderstorms and looking at them, um, and I never miss the opportunity to uh, bring up to David uh, just the amazing hydrological cycle. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about it, you know, just a simple, you know, rain shower that comes through, a a thunderstorm um, dumps tens of thousands of gallons of water in a few minutes, and yet it's silently floating through the sky. Have you ever been amazed at that? Um, uh, you know, again, Bible study me with, with me wouldn't be complete without some you know, trivial science, so here you go. Um, you know, down in Houston, they had all those floods recently. They got 14 inches of rain 
over Houston. Houston really occupies the greater Houston area about 600 miles. Let's just scale that down to 20 square miles. 14 inches of rain over 20 square miles. Um, that's about 20 million tons of water. And it was all delivered in a very, uh, in a, in a very low carbon footprint manner, wasn't it? Um, I mean, if anybody's green, God is. Um, you know, and it's 20 million tons of water sailing through the sky and being delivered. It's just astounding. God does it every day. It's these common things. That are, I don't, don't, you know, don't pass by those simple things of seeing God's uh, wisdom in his creation. Uh, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings the wind out of his treasuries. But everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. Um, for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them. He is the maker of all things. And everyone said, Amen. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse verse 17, he says, okay, go pack your luggage. Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitants of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them them that they may find it so. And here's uh, Jeremiah seeing this and understanding it and hearing it, responding to it. Woe is me for my hurt, for my wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity, and I must bear it. My tent is plundered, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone for me, and they are no more. There's no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. Um, you know, in that Bedouin society, the guys sit around drinking coffee and, you know, talking, talking packers, whatever they talk about. And the ladies had to set up the tent and do all that stuff. It's kind of an involved society, I thought it would, but... Um, You didn't get that. Okay. Um, Verse 21. For the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Um, That's quite the comment. The shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Uh, You don't want to go to a church where they don't seek the Lord. I mean, what's the point? (laughs) You know, uh, I've heard people say, well, I like going to church because it's, uh, you know, it's good societal context and it enforces good moral values. Well, so, do the, you know, so does Kiwanis Club. I'm not knocking the Kiwanis Club. But there ought to be something more. We've got to seek the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the report has come. And a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. Again, coming from the north, as Babylon's coming down out of the north. Verse 23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah is saying this as a prayer, um, responding to the Lord. I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. You know, a way of understanding that verse is this. You're not 
fit to, and I'm not fit to, manage our own lives large scale. We're not capable of governing ourselves. We need help. And it took, you know, it took me a good 24 years, 25 years to figure that out. Um, you know, some of you, it took a lot less time, some much more. But we finally came to that conclusion, I can't run my own life. And uh, the sooner you find that out, the better off you are. Uh, I need God to run my life for me. Verse 24, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you. Isn't this just like us? I want mercy and grace, Lord, please help me. But those people, go ahead and whack them hard. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. Of course, we have a different light. We have more light than Jeremiah did. We uh, have a much more to say about praying for our enemies and seeing them differently. Yeah, we all have that tendency. We all want to see people get theirs and get even with them, but God got Jesus so he doesn't have to get us. And so that's what we pray for. We don't pray God's going to get even with them. We pray that they would come to know the Lord and so that their sin would be taken care of in Jesus. Just as you have, somebody prayed that for you, Aren't you glad someone didn't say, get them, and meaning you, that instead we got grace and mercy? Yeah. Those people out there who have it coming to them, well, God got Jesus so he didn't have to get them. And that's what we want them to come to realize. Let's finish there, the end of chapter uh, 10, and we will pray. Stand and go our way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we love um, looking at you and looking at your grace and your mercy again and uh, the wonder of your creation, your wisdom, your power, and uh, Lord, the kindness and the mercy that you've shown to us and given to us in Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection and in the giving of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be uh, valiant for truth. In this, uh, in this upcoming week. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your name. Amen.